to uh, go. And uh, there we go. Follow the Grace Kids sign. Miss Michelle's got it today. <clears throat> and I'd like to invite the rest of you all to t take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6 this morning. Acts chapter 6. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when I preached and last week I had a special guest uh, here, one of our missionaries and Mark McDonald, he preached and did a great job. If you missed that, I encourage you to listen to that online. Um, did a, just a tremendous job, really challenged us. I really like Mark. Um, he says a lot of things to make you think and you're like, where's he going with this? Oh, and, and then all of a sudden he gets exactly where you think he would, you should get, right? And, it, and But it makes you, th makes you think and that's why I really love Mark and it's been a blessing to me as a friend and uh, someone to talk about the Word of God together. Um, but it was a blessing before that. I preached not in Acts. Um, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts. I've been gone and then back and then gone. So we're back into our series uh, of the mission of God here in the book of Acts. And hopefully uh, um, you won't forget, have gotten, forgotten too much. But I'll remind you a little bit today, all right, where, where, we're, where we've been. Um, but this morning we're going to be covering <clears throat> chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And the title of the message this morning is Team. Team. All right. And with that said, I want to just read as a whole these seven verses. We'll come back then and look at them individually. But uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6 of the book of Acts. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Par Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, approach your word together this morning, um, Lord, uh, hopefully if our hearts are not already prepared, Lord, I pray you would prepare our hearts uh, to listen, to learn, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we look at your word, as we trust you to teach us, trust you to change us through your word. Lord, we come uh, this uh, first day of the week. Um, with the last week behind us, with many thoughts, uh, maybe many concerns, many trials, maybe even many victories. Uh, Lord, uh, you know our hearts and you know uh, where we are. So Lord, we pray you'd meet us where we are and you'd take us from where we are to where you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, the uh, title of the sermon this morning is Team. A lot of times we refer to our family as Team McKenzie. When you have that many people, you can call it a team, right? Or if you're the Brady Bunch, I guess a bunch. But we call it a team. And I really enjoy team sports. I really enjoy individual sports, but I really enjoy team sports. I, I enjoy seeing a volleyball team successfully pass and set and spike the ball for a kill. I enjoy that. It takes a team to be able to do that. I also enjoy seeing a baseball team pull off a double play. It takes a team to do that. I also enjoy seeing soccer team uh, move the ball and control the ball with precise passes and then slip one in behind the defenders and have one, someone score the goal. I really enjoy seeing that happen. It takes a team in order to do that. I, I enjoy seeing a basketball team, not all basketball teams, but I enjoy seeing some basketball teams run a motion offense and the ball is passed around with precision to move the defense around where they want them, and all of a sudden they slip someone behind the defender for an easy basket. Uh, I enjoy that because it takes a team to pull that off. And, um, but, but there's a team sport I enjoy watching more than them all. <sighs> yes, we are in Texas, aren't we? All right, just making sure. Badminton. No, I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I enjoy, obviously, American rules football. I say that because everybody says football is soccer, right? But American rules football more than any other team sport. There are 11 players on the field at a time for each team, and it requires each of those 11 players 
playing their role, fully engaged in what they're called to do for that team to have success. Now, many people look at football that don't understand football, and they just look at, these are 11 men running around in tight pants, running into another 11 men trying to kill someone with a pigskin, right? And it's way more intricate than that. It's the most intricate of all team sports. If you understand the game of football, it really is because there's more positions on the field, not just because there's 11, but each of those positions are different, all 11 positions. So we got strong tackle, weak, uh, strong guard, center, weak guard, weak tackle. We got X, Y, Z, sometimes a B or an H. You all getting this, right? All right, you're going, yeah, exactly right. So some of you thought, well, I really understand football. I don't know yet. What in the world is he talking about? Every one of those positions are different, and all of them have a different assignment. And you take all those people who have different assignments, they have to come together for the good of the team, and everybody fully engaged in their role to pull off the play so the team will have success. And, and I don't just love American rules football because I played it and that was what I was best at because I was, those big guys could run around in tight pants and hit people, you know. And I wasn't near skilled enough to play many other things. But, but imagine this. Imagine in the game of football, no matter your understanding of the game, most of you understand there's a quarterback. He's a guy who usually gets all the glory when they win and gets all the blame when they lose. All right, that's why I didn't play that position. But, uh, but just imagine if that quarterback was asked, asked to carry out every assignment on the field. He would have to snap the ball to himself. He would have to run every route if it was a pass play. He would have to block up to usually seven, sometimes eight people rushing to kill him. He would have to block all of them by himself. All right. Then he would have to perfectly execute a pass to himself or hand the ball off to himself to try to be successful. Would that ever work? No one. You can take the greatest quarterback in the history of, the, the, of, of football, and he can never do that. He can never pull it off. He relies on his teammates. He can never have success. Everyone on the team must be fully engaged in carrying out their responsibility or their role for the team to have success. I love the acrostic for team. T-E-A-M. Together, everyone achieves more. Together, Everyone achieves more. That's what a team is. When they're together and everyone is fulfilling their roles, achievement is greater than when just one person is trying to do what they're supposed to do. I also enjoy the saying that says there's no I in team. Just spell team. T-E-A-M. There's not an I in there at all. And if you're going to be a successful team, people on the team need to understand it's not about that individual it's about the team. It's about the whole. It's about going together for, toward a goal and working together for that goal. There's no I in team. Well, in our passage this morning, the early church in Jerusalem is going to be reminded of the importance of team. That together everyone achieves more. They're going to be reminded of that importance. And everyone must be fully engaged in helping the church carry out its mission. And if we're going to be successful in carrying out our mission here at Grace Bible Church, we need to understand this concept too. That everyone must be fully engaged in fulfilling the role they have in the body of Christ or the team here at Grace Bible Church in order for us to fulfill the mission to which God has given the church, which is to make disciples and get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Everyone must be on the field. We don't need any cheerleaders on the sidelines. We need everyone engaged. Now, you may have the gift of encouragement when you're on the field and you're one of those raw, raw guys. Hey, go right after it. Raw, raw, cheer and encourage all you want. But you've got to be on the field because we need you on the field. The, 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 break, the, the, the uh, illustration breaks down a little bit, right, when we begin to talk about the body of Christ. Because there are people on the sidelines in games, but not in the body of Christ. Everybody's got to be playing. Everybody's got to be fully engaged. So let's turn our attention here to this passage this morning in Acts uh, 6, 1 through 7. And let's observe how the early church dealt with a potential major conflict that if not dealt with properly could have been very costly and then fulfilling the mission of the church. It could have hindered their success and doing what God had called them to do. And I'm going to work down through this passage as I normally do, especially in a narrative, and, and point out th certain things along the way, explain what's going on. And at the end of our time together, I'm going to come back and I'm going to point out four ways in which we can carry out the mission of the church to overcome conflict, to work as a team, so that we might fully be engaged in 
what God has called us to do. So before we begin here, as I promised in chapter 6, verse 1, I just want to remind us of the context of where we are. So after Peter heals this lame man and he preaches, and this is chapter 3, everybody's excited about it, right? No, he gets thrown in prison. And he's warned and he's threatened, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And he just says, you know, we can't, whatever you're going to do, I'm not really concerned. We can't help it. It just wells up inside us. We can't help but to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ because he's changed our life and he can change yours too. So he's he's released. Him him and John are released. And they, uh, then it goes right into, that's chapters 3, 4, and we'll get into uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Right? So you have persecution from the outside and now you're going to have conflict from within the church. And Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Lord. The Lord takes their life. It shakes them all. Right? They're all super concerned about what's going on here. And so you have this conflict from without, from within. Then guess what? They keep preaching about Jesus. Guess what happens? More conflict from without. Chances are all 12 of the apostles were put in prison. Um, it doesn't say for sure, but it looks like context. All 12 of them were put in prison. And they're threatened again. And they said, you know, we're going to obey God rather than men. Because Jesus came to die not only for us, but for you too. And you can repent and you can trust in Christ too. But we're not going to stop. So Gamaliel comes along and gives them great counsel. Say, hey, if this movement of these guys talking about Jesus is of God, you can't stop it. If it's not, it'll stop itself. So don't worry about it. So they flog them. They beat them to the, almost to the point of death. It's not a minor thing that they did in flogging them. And they release them. And guess what happens? They keep right on. All right? And that brings us up to the end of chapter 5. There in verse 42. Look there at verse 42 of chapter 5. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Their response to this persecution and release from prison was to keep preaching the gospel, to keep preaching the word of God. Nothing could stop that. Now, look at the end of our passage this morning of verse 7 in chapter 6. I want to point something out to you. Look at verse 7. It says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Especially notice that first phrase, the word of God kept on spreading. Verse 42 of chapter 5 and verse 7 of chapter 6 are like two bookends to what happens in our passage today. I don't want you to miss this. The word of God and the word of God. Do you see that? This is just like a parenthesis around what happens. And we don't want to miss this. It's very important. The, the emphasi- they, they emphasize, or, or, or um, Luke, as he's recording us, emphasizes the word of God, the gospel, in the fulfillment of the mission of the church. He emphasizes how important it is. In fact, it's the continual preaching, the teaching of the word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that enables a church to fulfill the mission God has them on. Without that, there's no power. There's no message. There's no mission without the word of God, which is synonymous with the gospel. And it's not just the gospel. When we think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels, it's not just what we find in the New Testament, which we have a full revelation of how God makes himself right with man. It's from Genesis to Revelation, because all of that is the gospel. All of that is the good news. Now, there is the gospel proper, and when you're sitting down with somebody, you probably don't need to read from Genesis through Revelation to share the gospel with them, right? We can boil that down. And, and Paul speaks about the gospel. And the, the, the Christ was, that he was born, that he was, uh, lived a perfect life, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again. All those are essential, nature, essential things of, of the gospel proper. But all of it's the gospel. All of it's the word of God. And without it, we cannot be, they could not be successful in overcoming the conflict and fulfilling the mission that God had them on. Therefore, if this is the issue, the word of God's that important, guess what the enemy, Satan, does? He does everything he possibly can to distract from the word of God. He does everything possible to bring about conflict from without and conflict from within. So we're not worried about the word of God anymore. We're worried, we're worried about just trying to deal with the conflict. And if we don't deal with it correctly, then he's done his job. He's hindered us from fulfilling the mission of the church. The account we find here in the beginning of chapter 6 is a conflict within the church. And it threatens to hinder the spread of God's word. So look at verse 1 with me here. 
the, the first phrase. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. They were increasing in number because of what was happening in verse 42 of chapter 5, right? There was a continual preaching and teaching of the word of God. Remember, the numbers are not there in the original. All right, it just flows. It helps us find places, but it just, it would say this. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, it kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. And, uh, Jesus Christ. Now at that time, while the disciples were increasing in number, and it's a direct re relation to the word of God being preached. And at this point, the increasing in number most likely had reached around 20,000 people. Men, women, and children, around 20,000 people. I'm talking about the church growth. And didn't come from being clever. It came because of the word of God being effectively and continually presented to the people. Church growth, 20,000 people. And I'm not saying that our church would necessarily grow to 20,000 people, but the church, is, the church around the world is growing like, like wildfire. In fact, most of that growth is going on in other countries. God is really blessing the church around the world. But with this explosive growth came growing pains, which is the second half of the verse, uh, verse 1. Look what it says. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenist Jews against the na native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, the Hellenistic Jews were those Jews who grew up outside of Judea or Jerusalem, all right, and the region around Jerusalem. They grew up outside and the reason why is because their ancestors have been driven out of Jerusalem in what's called the dispura or the dispersion, all right? And that happened um, back in 586 B.C. And uh, Babylonia, the Babylonians finally conquered Jerusalem and people were taken captive and they spread them, they took them to the Babylonian Empire and many of them stayed there for the rest of their lives. Now some of them came back to Jerusalem, but many of them stayed. And these people, these Hellenistic Jews, spoke Greek was their main language. All right, that's 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 what they did. They spoke Greek. They, some of them may have studied and knew a little bit of Aramaic or Hebrew as well, but their main language was Greek. All right, the, the Hellenistic Jews. I look back there and see Helen. It's not named after Helen. All right, but the Hellenistic Jews mean the Greek speakers. And um, now they they were looked down upon by the native Hebrews. The native Hebrews, the ones who came back or who were left there in Jerusalem and they spoke Aramaic and Hebrew as their main language. Some of them knew some Greek as well because of the culture that they were living in. But that was not where they went, went to worship the Lord. When they went to worship the Lord, the synagogues they went, they read from the Hebrew Bible. Right? The Hebrew Bible. Because Hebrew is God's language, right? Uh, yeah, laugh because it's, it's wrong. Some people think that, right? And then these, these Hellenists, they went to synagogues that taught from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They had the Greek Bible, the Old Testament, Greek. All right? So they went to two different synagogues. Now here's what happened on the day of Pentecost and the days afterward, on this particular day of Pentecost, is that people were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in, in the Messiah that has been promised. And they were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, people who were Greek-speaking Jews and people who were Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews, and they all came together as one church. That's what happened. Now, with that said, they also brought a lot of baggage. And they brought a lot of those prejudice and a lot of the culture that came with them. Where they grew up, some of it right, some of it not. But they brought that all into the body of Christ. Their, their differences were not doctrinal, what they believe, but they had different outlooks on certain things because of their cultural upbringing. Because of the language that they spoke. And even though these people were born again, the Spirit of God indwelled them. Yes, he did. They still had some of these cultural differences that could influence the way they related to each other. They still had prejudice they needed to work through and work out and overcome. The Hellenistic Jews believed that their widows here, we see, were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. Now, the, the, or, or your translation may say the daily distribution. Um, the word for serving and distribution could mean more than just food. It actually um, could mean providing for all their physical needs, not just um, food. It, it, had to do with, it had to do mostly with taking the goods that the body of Christ we saw earlier, that they brought them to the apostles, and the apostles used them to help everyone, all right, to, to serve the needs of the body. So it may be more than just the daily serving of food, but just making sure the widows were taken care of. And caring for widows was prescribed in the Jewish community in the law. All right, so this was a normal thing they would have done as Jews. Of course, later, um, Paul and James refers to the widows being taken care of 
That's now a responsibility of the church. James says pure and undefiled religion inside of God is this to care for widows and orphans in their distress. And then in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that you need to take care of the widows. There's a list of widows that, in the church and you need to take care of them. And not to do so is to be worse than an unbeliever. So that's some serious stuff. And so they were taking care of the widows. But it's very possible that the cultural and language difference amongst the, amongst the people here were clouding their judgment when it came to caring for the needs of the widows. Could that ever happen in the body of Christ? That certain prejudices, certain backgrounds would keep us from caring for other people? I think we know the answer to that. But before we move on here, let, let me just remind us that we come from a lot of different backgrounds in this church. A lot. A lot more than you think. We live in a, in a community that people come from all over the world to work. Um, people come, I was just down, we were down at the port ministry, uh, uh, Texas port ministry yesterday. Our life group was serving. I was just amazed at how many, how many countries come here. Some stay, some just come for a short time. But it's amazing. And not just countries, we come from different parts of the United States, don't we? And different parts of North America. And we speak different languages. Sometimes we think that, right? Uh, you go up north and you think they may speak a different language. You come down here, they think you speak a different language. You go to the East Coast. I mean, those t- talk of, t- people talk about basketball tournaments. I'm still not sure what a tournament is. All right? I don't know what they're doing in their the NCAA tournament, but I'm watching the NCAA tournament. All right? It's funny, and, and we laugh at that. But there's different, and, and not even just different language, but different, different culture. I mean, you, we, it's, it's, it can be a shock if you go to a different place, even in our own country. We have differences. And these can pose a threat to our unity and therefore pose, pose a threat to the mission of the church. Now, I'm going to come back to this later on at our end of our time together on this, this whole point. But, so we see this conflict in the church. So what now? Look at verses 2 through 4. I'll read them all again. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom you may put in charge of this task, that we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The complaint reached the apostles. All right? It's big enough. It's a big enough issue, this lack of taking care of the, the uh, Hellenist widows, um, it reaches them and they took action. So here's what they did. They personally went daily to every single widow, the Hellenists and the native Hebrews, and they took care of every need, right? No. See if you're listening or reading along. That's not what they did at all. Uh, no, they did exactly, that's exactly what they did not do. Instead, the apostles knew that their priority was the word of God in prayer. They understood what they had been called to. They understood, listen, their place on the team. Not greater, not better, different. They understood their place on the team. And we see this in verse 2. Look what it says there in verse 2. It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They understand that it was the word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit that would enable them to fulfill the mission of the church. And their call was to that. Serving tables was important um, to them. It wasn't beneath them. Please don't get that at all. Well, we can't serve tables. Let somebody else do that. For somebody who's less qualified and somebody who really is as great as us, the great 12 apostles. They don't do that at all. That's not their heart. And I say if you see, when you see this passage, you'll understand their heart. It wasn't that. They, they, in fact, thought it was so important that they called the whole congregation. The word congregation here means the full number. Whoa. They called them all together. And they asked for their help in solving the situation at hand. We need your help. Let's get together as a body and let's figure this thing out. All right? So here's what we want you to do. All right? They asked them to do in verse 3. It says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, we may put in charge of this task. The apostles thought this matter to be of such great importance that they asked the congregation to put forward seven men who could be put in charge of this task and make sure that all the widows, regardless of their cultural background, were taken care of to the glory of God. But it wasn't just any men. Hey, any volunteers? We need seven guys to go take care of these widows. They didn't do that. They asked the congregation. We need seven men, and here's the qualifications. Here's the kind of men we need to take care of this situation that we've got going on. 
Look at their qualifications. Look at verse 3. It says, of good reputation. It means character, good character witnessed by others. They saw that these men had good character. He says, fine guys, you know, you've seen them in action. They've got good character. That's the kind of guys we're looking for to take care of this task. I think about a friend of mine back in Springfield, Illinois, a guy named Kevin Elliott, and he coached baseball for a while. Then I hired him out of school to work with me with Phelps Christian Athletes. He's just a tremendous brother in Christ, a great friend, a lot like a brother to me, even more than a friend. And he, he told me about this old wrestling coach that was around his school for a long time. And he used to say, hey, a guy who's got good character, a guy who's a true friend, when somebody calls him up in the middle of the night and says, I need $1,000, I'm in desperate need of $1,000, he gives him $1,000, no questions asked. Now, there's some concern there a little bit, but it was his heart. This guy was so dedicated to his friends of good reputation, you could call on that person and they would help. That's what he was trying to get across. This is the kind of people that we need, people of good reputation, people who have great character, and they care about people. So the first qualification, they have good character. Secondly, it says full of the Spirit. So what does it mean to be full of the Spirit? And we talk about a lot, this a lot around here at Grace Bible, and it seems to come up a lot. And, and that, someone being filled with the Holy Spirit. Where we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And people can misunderstand that very quickly if not taken in context by the Word of God as a whole. We've dealt with that in multiple times. I just want to remind you, in Ephesians 6, Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. Look what he says. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is dissipation or wild, reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. I understand here's what being filled with the Spirit means. First of all, this is a present command. You're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. It's not just something that happens. Okay? You're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit indwells all believers in a personal relationship with us all right, because of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. He indwells us. But we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit over and over and over again. It's present. That means it's to keep going every single moment to be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. All right? It's also passive. It means it's God who's actually doing the filling. That's kind of interesting. Huh? He commands us to be filled with the Spirit, and he's the one who does the filling. And I'll explain to you how that happens just here in a second. But this is what happens. In, so what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit in general? Well, if you look at the phrase right before that, it says, do not get drunk with wine. And again, some of you, this is old hat, but it's always a good reminder for all of us. Who's in control when you're drunk? The alcohol or you? The alcohol. So don't let alcohol control you. Instead, let the Spirit control you. So someone who's, being, who's filled with the Spirit means they're controlled by the Spirit. That's what it means. And that was a prerequisite for these people who are going to take this task on. They need to be someone who can be full, full of the Holy Spirit being controlled by the Spirit. So to be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit and then this happens. How does this happen? Well a parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 5 is Colossians 3.16 Jared alluded to this earlier when he read our abide reading for this morning. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing, thankfulness, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, this, these, let the word of Christ within you richly and, then, and list all these things. Well, if you go back and you look at Ephesians 5, these are the exact same things that are listed of those who are filled with the Spirit. It's a natural outflow of those who are filled with the Spirit. So this is a synonymous phrase, being filled with the Spirit and letting the word of God richly dwell within you. So how are we filled with the Spirit? We let the word of God richly dwell within us. It abides in us. We take in God's word and then he uses his word to fill us with the spirit that could be controlled by the spirit because it's the spirit of God. It's the word of the spirit, all right, that we have in front of us. The word of the spirit of God. The spirit of God gave the word to us. So that's how we're controlled or filled with the spirit. And those who are controlled by the spirit through the word of Christ, which is richly dwelling within them, will also have what the next uh, requirement is called for the qualification of these men. Full of wisdom. And actually the phrase here in, 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 in Acts, they kind of go together. It's showing it's a natural result of those who are full, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. When you're full of the Spirit, you're controlled by Him, you'll be full of wisdom. Because you're full of God's Word and then you can give wisdom to those around you. And make wise choices based upon wisdom from the Word of God in difficult situations. Was this a difficult situation? Because this had gotten hairy? Because this had gotten out of control? You bet it could have. Hey, my... 
my mom's not being taken care of. We got a problem. You got it? I love my mom. She'll be here this fall. Anybody cross her, let, you're in trouble with me. And I bet you all the rest of you guys think that the same way, right? You take up for your mom. Let's go. And, and this could happen. And, and all of a sudden, you got a war in the church. You don't need guys who don't have, aren't full of spirit and full of wisdom to take care of that. You don't need guys who are what the, the Bible calls pugnacious, which is fighters, boxers, strikers. You don't need those kind of guys. You need guys who are full of wisdom and can help ease the situation and bring about wisdom so you can solve the problem by the grace of God. And not only those who are filled by the Spirit full of wisdom, but they're also display the fruit of the Spirit, which we see in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what happens to those who are filled with the Spirit. They have the fruit of the Spirit as well. So far from seeing this task as a menial thing below them, the apostles ask that this task be taken up by other godly men who the people respect and have proven themselves to be of good reputation, to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Do you think this is a menial task? Do you think the apostles think we're, we're below that? Or above that, I'm sorry? They don't think that at all. They think, that, they think so much of us. Give us the best seven men we got. The best seven men we got to take care of this. They loved and they cared about the widows. They cared about the body of Christ. So who were these men who met these qualifications and were chosen to serve in, in this role? Look at verse 5. This statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nacanar, and Timon, and Perineus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, I want to point out a couple of things here. Stephen and Philip would soon become prominent in the spreading of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. In fact, the very next chapter, chapter 7, Stephen is the main guy here. And a guy named Saul, who would become the apostle Paul, is in on killing him. And I believe that the way that Stephen responded to this persecution, the way he handled it with such grace and strength and dignity, God used that to impact the apostle Paul. I believe that with all my heart. I'll show you that here in the next couple of weeks. And all of a sudden, what happened to the gospel when Paul took off with it? Boom! It blew up. It spread all over the place. Also, Philip, all right, in, in chapter 8, runs into this guy from Ethiopia. He's an Ethiopian official. And he is reading in his chariot something from Isaiah, and, he's, and, and Philip asks him as he's walking along, I can only imagine walking along beside this chariot or whatever it is, and, hey, do you know what you're reading? He says, no, I don't, how could I? Unless somebody explained it. And he explains the gospel to him. And this Ethiopian comes to know Christ. Where do you think he took the gospel back to? To Ethiopia. To Africa. We think we were the first missionaries in Africa. Are you kidding me? No way. This Ethiopian eunuch was. Why? Because Philip took his role and call as a... As a, as a member of the body of Christ seriously and he shared the gospel so we see first we see we see Stephen and we see Philip and they're mentioned first and I believe they're mentioned first because of what happens next Stephen it's all about Stephen for a chapter and then we have what happens with Philip right after that that's why they're mentioned first and then we have these other guys who are never mentioned again doesn't mean they weren't important they weren't men that God used it just happens to be what they rec he recorded here but listen to this all the men who were chosen had Greek names. Every single one of these men who were chosen had Greek names. Now who was the issue with earlier with the widows? Was it the native Hebrews or the Greek speaking? The Greek speaking. That says a ton about the unity, the humble unity in the body at this time. The Hebrews were willing to say the issues with the Hellenistic Jews and maybe we're not doing a good job. Maybe we're letting our prejudices get in and, and our culture to keep us from really sharing what we're supposed to with these widows and taking care of them. Like, so, you know what? To make sure that doesn't happen again, we're going to trust seven guys who are Hellenists. And we're going to let them take care not only of their widows, but all the widows. Now, I don't think just seven guys were doing all that to all those widows. I think they had other people helping them out, obviously. We're going to let those guys. Now, that's, that's dangerous, isn't it? Because those guys could have said, you know what? They were, dish, they were dishing out the food to our widows. <laughs> we're not going to dish the food out to their widows either. They could have done that, right? They didn't. 
And they, they trusted each other so much that, the, that, they were, that the Holy Spirit was working in their life that they wouldn't do that. They humbly took the chance that that might happen. And they elected seven who were Hellenists, who were Greeks, Greek-speaking Jews. One even a proselyte. How awful would that be? If you're Jew, that would be terrible. But not for the body of Christ. Because they were all level at the foot of the cross. You see, these men were proven and godly men. And they could trust them. So look at verse 6. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The apostles commissioned these men to the task, and they showed their approval by laying hands on them. There was nothing magical to happen through the apostles' hands. They were like, saying, you know, you watch the, what is it, the Bible now, every once in a while, it gets a little goofy. You know, some of the things that happens. Nothing happened like that. There wasn't like electricity. Alright, they were already godly men. The Holy Spirit, I mean, the Holy Spirit indwelt these men. How much more powerful could they be? They didn't need the apostles to give them any power. They, they just proved, hey, we're with you on this. We, we agree. We agree with you all. These are seven godly men. We've seen it too. And we're laying our hands on them, just conferring that we affirm them. And we're commissioning them to go out and carry out this important task for the body of Christ so that we can keep focused on the mission of the church. Now, many people say that these seven men were the first deacons in the church. Anybody ever heard that? These are the first deacons in the church. Here's my response to that. Yes and no. Alright? Yes, in the sense that they performed tasks that would later be given to those who would, be ser who would serve as deacons in the body of Christ. They did many of those same things. No, in that they are not called deacons here, nor are they mentioned as deacons anywhere else in the scripture. So yes and no. They, they function like, partly like deacons will later, and yet they were never called deacons um, as the church began to spread, the roles carried out by the apostles, and these seven men were given to roles that were in, should be in every local church. The roles of elder slash pastor, it's the same, it's synonymous. Uh, the words are, I don't have time to show you that, but it's really easy to show you that. But those are synonymous. And deacons. So you had the elders and the deacons. And what happened is the roles the apostles kind of took care of, that the word of God and prayer was given to the elders in each local congregation. It actually says that Paul, in every church he planted, appointed elders in every church he planted. And if you see him write to um, different churches later on, to the elders and deacons of Philippi or Ephesus or whatever. So those are two roles. And then the, the, the deacons took on the role that these seven, at least some of the role that these seven performed here in Acts 6. So later on, and, and we go through the book of Acts, you'll see elders come up and pointed in all the churches. And then you see the letters that Paul writes that are, there's deacons there as well. And they just took on these roles that were part of the early church. Um, now, now look at the results of handling this conflict well by incorporating the use of the whole team. We got the team involved here. Look at verse 7. The word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Because the church responded well to this conflict, and, and everyone was engaged in carrying out their role to fulfill mission, the mission was succeeding, wasn't it? That's what verse 7 says. Uh, the word of God went out, and more people... We're becoming followers of Jesus Christ, even to the point, and I love this, that many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Are you kidding me? The people who hated Jesus the most, who hated the apostles the most, many of the priests were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They were being obedient to the faith. When they were obedient to the faith, they were obeying the call to repent, to, to turn from trusting themselves and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to make themselves right with God. That's amazing. And if you would read this as a first century Christian... You go, whoa, the priest. I mean, this is only God could do this. That would be your response. And that should be our response today. This is amazing what's happened. Why? Because it didn't allow a conflict to get in the way of the mission. Everybody started pulling their weight. Everybody started coming along on the team. And they, they, they engaged fully in the role that God had called them to be in so that they all would not be distracted by a conflict. So they could all move forward in the spreading of the gospel. That's what happened. They became a team in the midst of the conflict, or they functioned as a team in the midst of the conflict, and God blessed it. I love that. 
That's what happens when God's people work as a team. This is what happens here at Grace when we work as a team. So let me just encourage you and exhort you with four ways to help assure the success of the mission of the church. Number one, keep the word of God central. Keep the word of God central. Remember our two bookends? The end of chapter 5 and verse 7. The word of God. The word of God. Verse 42, the word of God was being preached every day. And what was happening? Well, God was adding number and they were increasing in number. Verse 7, they were increasing in number. Why? Because the word of God was being preached and taught and spoken of. It's the teaching of the, and the preaching of the word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit that God uses to fulfill his mission of making disciples and getting the gospel to the world. It's through that avenue. There's not another avenue. There's not another avenue but the word of God, the gospel. Paul wrote later to the church of Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Greeks, for everyone who believes. Keep the word of God central. Individually, in your own life, spend time daily in the word of God. Soak in the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. Sing the word of God. Talk about the word of God with others. It's part of the, re- part of the reason we're doing the abide reading, so we're doing it together. We can talk. What you- we read chapter 19 of Genesis. Let's talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Woo! And talk about God's, when Jared read this, God's mercy. Did you hear that when he read? God's mercy and mercy on Lot. Talk about the mercy of God. This is a word. And let's do it corporately. Here on Sunday mornings in our life groups, anything we do, let's be driven by the word of God. Secondly, guard against cultural prejudices. Guard against cultural prejudices. We come, obviously, from different backgrounds and cultures, but we need to take time to understand those backgrounds and cultures. Just because it's a different culture doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's right either. But just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong or, wrong or right. We've got to talk about those things and learn. And we can learn a lot of things. We were down at the, I was reminded of this yesterday. We were down at the Texas Port Ministry, and um, Tom Watson was down there... Uh, Ty and Tom led us in prayer but before he, he, he prayed and Tom, Tom is a, 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 a black gentleman all right, and he grew up in a little bit different cultural church than I did and he's singing so he got out of the in a chorus and he just starts singing pray for me it was great and he was just pray, he was praying his song and then he prayed different, dif- different from how I grew up was it wrong? no it was great I can learn a lot from Tom and we can learn a lot from each other but we got to take time to spend, we got to spend time with each other to learn. Right? And then when we do that, it'll enable us to know the difference between principle and preference. This is so important. Principle and preference. There's just two P's so we can remember it. But principle is things that are true, no matter the culture. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and those who trust in him are saved from God's wrath. That's true. That's a, that's a principle. There's tons of principles in the scripture that are just true no matter the culture. There's also prefer- preferences. Man, who loves the old hymn, Just As I Am? Come on now. Uh, yeah, man, if you don't, what's wrong with you? I'm kidding. We kind of switched it up this morning. Oh, gosh, you can't do that. Who says? Who says you can't have drums in a church building? Where does it say that in the word of God? That may not be your preference. All right, and Jacob wouldn't even hear this morning on the electric guitar. Whoo! No, you're kidding. It's got to be the organ, right? Because that was right there in the New Testament. Those are preferences, and it's okay to have preferences. I have my preferences too, but they're not principles. And what happens, all of a sudden we make our preferences because of our cultural upbringing. We make those principles, and now we've got problems. You know what's really important? The color of the carpet. That's important. Let's go. Tyler, I don't like this color. What color do you like? I knew it. Let's go. I like blue. Right? I mean, we can do that. We laugh, but that's what happens. We get our preferences and our principles all mixed up. And a lot of it has to do because we don't take time to understand each other's backgrounds and cultures. And then we let our cultures overcome the Word of God and say, this is more important than the Word of God. Never. Embrace them. Make it beautiful. And make, it, make this beautiful rainbow of the Word of God. I hate to use that, word, that, that illustration now because of what's happened in our world. But it's our, it's our rainbow. It's God's rainbow. 
Nobody can steal the rainbow from us. And you make it beautiful because we're all different. Right? And that's, so we've got to understand that. So we've got to guard against those cultural pre, pre, uh, prejudices. Uh, thirdly, elders. Elders. Devote yourself. Devote yourself to the word of God in prayer. And I, and I say this for the benefit of those who serve as elders here in our body and those who aspire to be elders as it talks about in Timothy. Elders, pastors, devote yourself to the word of God in prayer. Now, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, but I'm going to read from this book here called The Contemplative Pastor in a chapter called The Unbusy Pastor by a guy named Eugene Peterson. Peterson he shares a great illustration of the call of pastors. All right, listen, and I think you'll be, whether you're a pastor, elder or not, you'll be encouraged and challenged by this. It's called The Poised Harpooner. In Herman Melville's Moby Dick, there's a tur turbulent scene in which a whaleboat scuds across a frothing ocean in pursuit of the great white whale, Moby Dick. The sailors are, are, lab are laboring fiercely, every muscle taut, all attention and energy concerned on the task. The cosmic conflict between good and evil is joined. Chaotic sea and demonic sea monster, sea monster versus the morally outraged man, Captain Ahab. In this boat, however, there is one man who does nothing. He doesn't hold an oar. He doesn't perspire. He doesn't shout. He is languid in the crash and the cursing. This man is the harpooner, quiet and poised, waiting. And in this sentence, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to start their feet out of idleness and not of toil. Melville's sentence is a text set alongside the psalmist, Be still and know that I am God, and alongside Isaiah's, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Pastors know, slash elders, know there is something radically wrong with the world. We are all engaged in doing something about it. The stimulus of conscience, the memory of ancient outrage, and the challenge of biblical command involve us in the Antarctic, Antarctic sea that is the world. The white whale, symbol of evil, and the crippled captain, personification of violated righteousness, are joined in battle. History is a novel of spiritual conflict. In such a world, noise is inevitable, and immersed energy is exp expended. But if there is no harpooner in the boat, there will be no proper finish to the chase. Or if the harpooner is exhausted, having abandoned his assignment, the ministry of God, the ministry of God's word and prayer, and become an oarsman, he will not be ready and accurate when it's time to throw his javelin. Somehow, it always seems more compelling to assume the work of the oarsman, laboring mightily in a moral cause, throwing our energy into a fray we know has immoral consequence. And it always seems more dramatic to take on the outrage of Captain Ahab, obsessed with a vision of vengeance and retaliation, brooding over the ancient injury done by the enemy. There is, though, other important work to do. Someone must throw the dart. Someone must be a harpooner. The metaphors issue Jesus used for the life of ministry are frequently images of single, the small, the quiet, which have effects far in excess of their appearance. Salt, leaven, seed. Our culture publicizes the opposite emphasis. The big, the loud. It's then a strategic necessity that pastors deliberately allow themselves with the quiet, or ally themselves with the quiet, poised harpooners and not leap frenzied to the oars. There is far more need that we develop the skills of the harpooner than the muscles of the oarsman. It is far more biblical to learn quietness and attentiveness before God than to be overtaken by what John Allman named the twin perils of ministry, flurry and worry. For flurry dis 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 dissipates energy and worry constipates it. Years ago, I noticed, as all pastors must, that when a pastor left the Novian congregation, the congregational life carried on very well, thank you. A guest preacher was assigned to conduct Sunday worship, and nearby pastors took care of the funerals, weddings, and crisis counseling. A congregation would go for months, sometimes as long as a year or two, without a regular pastor. And I thought, all these things I'm so busy doing, they aren't being done in the pastor's con congregation, and nobody seems to mind. I asked myself, what if I, without leaving, Quit doing them right now. Would anybody mind? I did, and they don't. So what am I saying? Making an excuse for pastors to be lazy, right? Elders to be lazy, not at all. 
I'm, I'm challenging our elders, anyone who would be an elder here at our body, to be a harpooner. Be a harpooner. Our role, guys, is the ministry of the word of God in prayer. That's our role. And when we leave that, we're disserving our body. It's a disservice to our body. I'm talking to me and all those guys who serve and who have served here. That's what can happen. So, you think, what in the world does that have, have to do with me? Here's, what, here's, how, here's how you can help us. Support us by being part of the team. Commit to pray for us. Communicate with us. Talk to us. We, we need information to be able to properly serve and, and to be wise in the use of the word of God in prayer. How can we pray? How does the word of God come to bear on that situation? We need you to pray for us. We need you to communicate with us. And another way to support the elders in their role is the fourth way in which to help assure the success of the mission of the church. Everyone be fully engaged in carrying out your role. Everyone pull your weight. I remember Chuck Moore used to say, hey, the great job, of, he used to joke about this, the job of a pastor, or a, a job of the reason you hire a pastor is just you can light him on fire and watch him burn. I mean, he's just going to go at it. You all just watch him do ministry. That's what you do, right? He's joking, of course. And that's not the model here at Grace Bible Church. Believe me. I don't feel that at all. But, uh, but we all have to be part of the team. We all have to play our role. And here's my question to you. What role are you currently playing on the team here at Grace to help fulfill the mission of the church? What's your role? What's your role? Jump in. Get on, get on the playing field. Get in the game and play. And maybe you're, you're, you're just, you just need to discover it. That's what, just get on the field. We'll find a role for you. There's a role God has for you. You need to find that, and you need to give all that you are to that goal. All that you are to that role, so we can all be heading the right direction, so we can fulfill the mission of the church. Remember, together, everyone, everyone achieves more. Because it's about the team, it's about the gospel. Here's my question, are you on the team? I'm not talking about Team Grace Bible Church, or Team McKenzie, or Team whatever. I'm talking about Team Jesus Christ. Are you on his team? Have you quit trusting in yourselves to make, make yourself right with God? Understand you can never meet his standard of perfect, perfection. And do you understand that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to meet his demand of perfect righteousness? And if you would trust in what he did for you, that he would forgive you, make you one of his children, give you the Holy Spirit, give you a brand new nature, and put you on his team and give you a role. My prayer is if you haven't done that, that you would do that today. That you get on the team and trust in Jesus Christ. And the rest of us, everybody who's on the team, would fully engage in our role for the glory of God and the fulfillment of the mission of the church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Acts 6, a simple little um, seven verses that sometimes we can overlook. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, help us embrace what you've called us to do. Help us work through conflict by being part of the team, by fully engaging in our role and, and using the wisdom from your word to deal with conflict so you might be glorified and the church might spread throughout the earth that people would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.